Welcome to Tisky Sour, where we are giving you 60 whole minutes of uninterrupted coverage of Prince Harry. Yes, his book has... No, I'm joking. We're going to give you about 20 minutes of Prince Harry because it is quite interesting, but we are leading the show with more important stories. Um, I'm joined for the first time in 2023 by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing? Great to be joining you, Michael. I feel like this is Navarra's year, Michael. I feel like it's our year. I hope you feel the same way. Why not? I feel like last year, was, uh, we had a good year last year, but yeah, this year can only get better. I agree. How was your break? Are you refreshed? It was incredibly restful. We uh, had a nice Christmas day. We didn't go anywhere. My, uh, my better half fell asleep at about 10 minutes to midnight on New Year's Eve. So <laughs> that left us, you know, relatively shortchanged in terms of a good night out. But apart from that, yes, very good. Thank you, Michael. As I say, later on the show, we're going to be talking about Prince Harry. And especially we're going to be talking about his claim or admission or however you want to put it, that he killed 25 people in Afghanistan. So he's called them Taliban uh, members. I mean, we, we don't know how to categorize these people, but that's the big news of the day. At least, I mean, if you're looking at the mainstream press, we do have another big story to get going with. After 13 years of falling wages and chronic underfunding, public sector workers have been fighting back with a wave of strike action this winter. And what's the government's response? Well, they don't seem too interested in compromise and instead plan to use their legislative power to further limit the right to strike. This was Business Secretary Grant Shapps laying out the proposals. We want to make sure that there's every opportunity to try to get these strikes settled. So we're opening the door, we're opening our books as well, so that the information we send to the independent pay review bodies who make the recommendations on pay is actually transparent and the unions can see it and we hope that they'll reciprocate. In the meantime, we'd really like for them to call off the, the strikes. But also today, we're saying, look, there has to be a, a minimum safety level that people can expect even on strike days, particularly in areas like healthcare, making sure that an ambulance can turn up, for example. Uh, that's very patchwork at the moment. Other modern European economies all have minimum safety levels, and we've announced that we'll be introducing those uh, in legislation, in law uh, today as well. So the new announcement from Shaps would affect the NHS, transport, education, fire and rescue, border security and nuclear decommissioning. It represents an expansion in the scope of the proposed minimum service level bill. That was initially only going to apply to rail workers. That's what was in the Tory manifesto. Now, the legislation would mean that employers could sue trade unions if a minimum service was not delivered on a strike day. It's also been suggested some employers could be subject, employees, sorry, could be subject to dismissal if they refuse to go into work on a strike day. So if you were told you are part of the minimum service and you don't go in, um, you wouldn't be protected as a worker on strike as you are now. Now, the proposals, as you'd expect, have been vigorously opposed by the trade union movement. This was Mick Lynch's response. The devil will be in the detail. They're saying it will affect every public service. They're going to target uh, the railways, it seems, uh, uh, at the first level. But I think it will mean that many of our members will not have the right to strike. Because if you operate in a signalling system, you've got to operate the whole system. So they'll say, you have to go to work. Now, we'll have to see if that's compliant with international law. We don't think it is. We've got uh, QC's opinion that, that tells us that much of what they've got in mind could be completely illegal under the uh, Human Rights Act under, and under the International Labour Convention. So it's up to them what they put into their drafts and we'll have to see what we can do about it when it comes forward. Keir Starmer, surprisingly, also gave an uncharacteristically unequivocal response. 
the government is all over the show on this. Every day there's a different briefing as to whether there's going to be legislation, what's going to be in it, when it's going to come. And I think there's a reason for that, and that's because I don't think this legislation is going to work. And I'm pretty sure they've had an assessment that tells them uh, that it's likely to make a bad situation worse. And so in answer to your question, um, obviously, um, you know, we'll look at what they bring forward, but if it's further restrictions, then we will repeal it. Um, and the reason for that is I do not think that legislation is the way that you bring an end to industrial disputes. You have to get in the room and compromise. You can't legislate your way out of 30 years, 13 years um, of failure. So, um, you know, as I say, the government's all over the show. Um, will we um, repeal it? Yes, uh, we will. Now, if this Tory law is passed, and there is some doubt because it might be that the Lords block it, as I say, it was only in the manifesto when it comes to rail workers. If it's passed, then one of the sectors affected will be the fire service. And earlier today, I spoke to Ricardo Latore, a national officer at the Fire Brigades Union. I asked him what he made of Grant Shapps' claim that minimum service laws would simply put Britain in line with other European countries. Of course, various sectors, most certainly in the fire rescue, service, um, there are minimum requirements set out across Europe. In some places they don't exist, in some places they do, and we've got different nuances within the fire service, whether you know it's a municipal body or a military body, which adds another context. But the fact is that where where they do exist, and I think if we look closer into it, they're not often used because, you know, we work closely with EPSU, the European Public Services Union, and, and fire service unions across the world. And the fact is, you know, when we look to many of our sister unions across Europe, the social dialogue is better. You know, we've put requests to ministers on a number of occasions for urgent talks to address the issue of paying the fire rescue service. And they don't take us up on it, whereas that is the opposite to what we see abroad. And they often reach, um, you know, outcome by agreement and, and never need to use these minimum service agreements and where they are in place also um i think there's a much stronger respect for the right to strike in countries around europe as we know we don't actually have you know any positive right to strike here. what we have is legal exemption so the right to strike is um much more strongly respected amongst fire rescue services that we work with across europe but now i will end on i do find it almost laughable that, you know whenever tory minister points to a law elsewhere they want to compare to it's always the ones that level us down you know, it's always it's always the lowest common denominator because if we want to compare our trade union laws if we want to compare our workers rights to other areas across the world you know then that's probably an exercise that we would like to take take part in and we'd like to look at the areas where workers have much stronger rights including rights to strike and pick it than we do here you know it's just a typical cherry picking exercise by a Tory minister to attempt to justify levelling down. Could you talk us through what difference this would make in, in practice? And I suppose also, at the moment, what happens when there is, say, a fire service strike? Is there a minimum service already that's but just the one that's not sort of enforced by law? What happens if there is a fire on a strike day for the fire brigade? The weekly, when the fire service is removed during a day of industrial action, that rests, the blame for that rests at the feet of the employers. Um, it rests at the, the feet of ministers who refuse to resolve these issues um, you know, in, in the proper manner through sensible industrial relations and dialogue. But when we get to that point, if we look at um, our pension strike back in 2015 and discussions that have already gone on surrounding our current ballot, 
Um, you know, firefighters don't want to see anybody hurt. We join the service. We put ourselves at risk for the exact opposite of that. Um, so we regularly put in place what we call major incident agreements where voluntarily, if a major incident was to occur, we set up routes in which we can contact members to discuss voluntarily returning to work to respond to certain incidents. Yeah, if that's forced on us, you know, and I, I heard Mick Lynch yesterday refer to it as conscription, and I think you know, that that explains it, describes it very well. Now, if you're forced to work against your will, regardless of the, the outcome of a strike ballot, um, we'll lose all power within the workplace. So even with that tool in our toolbox, we've seen our pay cut by you know, more than four grand in real terms over the last 10 years. We've seen firefighters forced to food banks. We're seeing you know, more than almost 12,000 firefighters cut since 2010. And that's when we've got that tool in our toolbox to be able to try and rebalance that power a bit in the workplace. If that's taken away from us, the bosses will just ride roughshod. We'll be told to sit down and shut up on matters that are you know, forcing us into in-work poverty, into matters that are removing firefighters and fire engines, life-saving equipment from our communities, no matters that are seeing, as we saw over the summer, firefighters hospitalised due to a lack of resources through the heatwave. We will be told to simply sit down and shut up because we'll be collectively begging if we don't have that right to strike in an effective manner. So earlier you mentioned food banks and fire brigade members being forced to use food banks. I want to show you a tweet, which I'm sure you're aware of and have seen um, from Brendan Clark-Smith. He's the Tory MP for Bassett Law. I mean, he responded to a tweet from your union saying, I respect the profession, but £32,000 and using a food bank, never heard such a ridiculous thing in my life. I earned a lot less than that for most of my teaching career. And so do many of my constituents. If true, which is unlikely, I suggest learning how to budget and prioritize. Now, how would you respond to that tweet from Brendan Clark-Smith? I don't think that will surprise any, any firefighter, Michael. You know, that's just a repeat of the disdain that Tory ministers have shown towards firefighters and like public service workers, all workers, in fact, um, for some time now. You know, he may have lived on a worker's wage at some point, as he suggests there in his tweet, but he hasn't done so through this cost of living crisis. He hasn't done so after, under the worst actions of his own government, though, through a crisis of his own government's making. And I think you know, that tweet just goes to show just how out of touch uh, you know, the ministers proposing these laws and you know, these Tory ministers are with working people trying to get through this crisis right now. Um, you now they clapped us, now they're clapping us all the way to a food bank and insulting us when we get there. You know, if that doesn't make a firefighter want to pick up their ballot and vote yes for strike action before the 30th of January, I don't know what, Michael, them sort of tweets you get a response from workers that they deserve. Finally, you mentioned the strike ballot there. Can you give us a sort of quick uh, sweep of the state of play? What is the dispute between the Fire Brigades Union and their employers? When should we expect strike action if it happens? So firefighters have faced real-term pay cuts now uh, for over a decade. A firefighter's pay packet now uh, is worth, on average, you know, approximately £4,000 less than it was this time 10 years ago. Uh, and at the same time, we've been asked to do more in more dangerous conditions. And there's 12,000 less of us now than there was this time 10 years ago. And they're the sort of conditions that saw firefighters 
they're being hospitalised through the recent heat wave because we simply didn't have enough resources to attend safely and fight the number of incidents we were being called to. You know, we were clapped as COVID heroes through the pandemic. Firefighters not only continued carrying out their everyday role, but firefighters volunteered for additional roles, uh, such as delivering medicine and PPE to the vulnerable, driving ambulances, assisting the ambulance service, you know, and activities as difficult as moving the bodies of the deceased. But when the clapping stopped, we were met with another pay insult, another real terms pay cut of 2%. Following a massive rejection via a consultative ballot of our members, that did change to 5%. But again, as, as you'll know, still a real terms pay cut following our previous 12 years of pay cuts. And it's got to the point where firefighters simply can't afford to just meekly accept further pay cuts. And you know, the voice of our membership was strong. They wanted to do something about it. We'd exhausted all other avenues and we were left with no option but to ballot for strike action. And that ballot is ongoing now. It runs until the 30th of January. So we're very confident we're going to smash all of these um, anti-union thresholds that have been put in place. And then that means that unless employers, because we, we negotiate pay slightly differently within the Fire and Rescue Service, we don't have a pay review body. We still do it through what we call the National Joint Council uh, via collective bargaining. So unless um, an agreeable and acceptable and fair pay offer that is agreeable to FBU members comes forward before the 30th of January, you know, we strongly expect that to be a huge yes vote and for strike action to commence shortly after. That was Ricardo Latore speaking to me earlier today. We will, of course, be updating you on the developments in that FBU dispute as they emerge. We are sticking on this story. Not many people are in the mood to take the Tories seriously when it comes to their proposed anti-strike laws. This week, Business Secretary Grant Shapps appeared on the News Agents podcast to defend them. This is what happened. If you have uh, the highest category um, uh, problems, so you know, someone having a heart attack or uh, perhaps uh, bro broken bones, um, stroke, um, it seems proper and indeed is done elsewhere that you should still be able to get an ambulance in those in that situation. Countries like France and Germany, Spain, Italy and elsewhere already have minimum safety levels in place. In fact, we're the outlier for not having Good. those. Can I just delicately point out the flaw in the argument is that at the moment you can't get an ambulance, you can't get health workers, you can't get beds in hospitals. There's no point in suggesting that it's the strikes that are causing this problem. It's not. It's the shortages. That's why the strike, the strikes are happening, because quite frankly, the staff can't cope as it is. Honestly, are, Grant, it's not it's not lists though, it's not waiting times, it's literally having to spend the night on your floor because the ambulance doesn't come yeah. because there aren't enough people, having yeah. to sit in a hospital car park or on a hospital chair yeah, no, no. because you haven't got enough people there. These aren't like operation waiting times where you might be able to go about your daily life. These are literally A&E desperate times. That was Emily Maitlis calling out Grant Shapps there. I mean, Aaron, I think what she said there, she's not a radical lefty by any means, um, does seem to be the common sense at this point. This whole sort of anti-strike talking points, we need to have tougher laws on the strikers so you can get an ambulance. I mean, it's not working, is it? No. The Tories, when it comes to policy, are now operating at kind of two levels. You saw this also, by the way, with the Rishi Sunak maths proposal. 
So speculatively, here's this law, or we want to do X. But if you want to do that, it means you're going to have to effectively break with what is the reality. So we want to have compulsory mathematics teaching for everybody till 18. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. We don't have the math teachers to do it. There is not the state capacity to do it. We want to guarantee a certain minimum with regards to, you know, A&E and paramedic services and the NHS. We don't do that anyway. So it's, it's, it's a really strange moment, Michael, where you have on the one level, you know, the, the sort of speculative legislation and then just reality where people are waiting for hours and hours for ambulances on days that there aren't strikes already. You know, I think I mentioned it this at the tail end of last year, Michael. I, I spoke to a woman recently who had a myopic pregnancy. She could have died. And she was found by her husband just bleeding. And she called an ambulance and it hadn't arrived after hours and hours and hours. This is the reality for millions of people. I mean, millions of people aren't getting an ambulance every year. But, you know, you can be pretty sure, sadly, that every, everybody basically has to rely on any services once every five, 10 years, even young, healthy you know, extremely healthy people such as yourself, Michael. So this is the reality for millions of people. The further we go into Tory government, which is absolutely committed to underfunding and under-resourcing the NHS. So it is, it is kind of surreal. It is kind of surreal for them to be talking in these terms when the infrastructure is just collapsing. It's in freefall, particularly since COVID. I mean, particularly since 2010, all of the preceding trends before that, after 20, 2020 rather, all the preceding trends before that, after 2010, were obviously very bad. But then something has just put it on steroids after 2020 with regards to labor supply, with regards to all manner of things. And you see this uh, in area after area with regards to uh, public services, it's collapsing. I think personally, this whole charade is just really short term and about taking the wind out of the sails of trade unions and workers who are now clearly gathering momentum in their struggle for higher wages. It's about PR. It's about short-termism. In other words, it's everything that the Conservatives now stand for when it comes to running the country. Pat Cullen, who's the General Secretary of the Royal College of Nurses, so they have one group of people who will be affected if these laws go through. She was saying, look, we've been asking for mandatory minimum service levels for years, right? Because they've been saying, look, our, our, our nurses are working in dangerous situations. There should be um, some kind of law whereby, you know, this number of patients have to be staffed by this number of, of, of nurses. But you've always refused to do that. And now you want to introduce it purely only in these particular circumstances when we go on strike. So you're only interested in a minimum service if that can discipline us and the, the wage demands we make. No other time are they, are they, do they care? Or they give a damn about minimum services. We could see that across every public service in the country. If there were laws about minimum services, then you know the law would be being broken every day. Yeah, and I think there was um, there was data around this, Michael. I said I think basically you only have adequately staffed nurses. I think twenty five percent of the time at the moment. So basically, three out of every four shifts, there are you know inadequate numbers of nurses. We are short in this country, approximately fifty thousand nurses already. So like you say, the default within the NHS is a substandard level of care. And if there's going to be a legal obligation to a certain minimum, then great. Okay, let's apply this to both sides. I mean, you know, look at any waiting times when it was uh, Labour, and we're very critical of Tony Blair and New Labour, quite rightly so. But when you look at things like the commitment to waiting in an A&E for four hours or less, it was basically 100% by 2010. Again, that's in freefall. Who pays for that? Who's accountable for that? Who's responsible for that when it comes to the government? 
when it comes to completely butchering standards in the National Health Service. You can't blame workers for that. And I think the reality is, again, they're operating at the level of speculation and then reality. Another reality is you have a staffing crisis. You have very few incentives at the moment to actually get new staff members. And into that, into the falling wages, they're going to see their wages fall by, you know, they've seen their wages fall by 10% since 2010 nurses. It's going to be another 10% by the end of next year. So you're looking at, and that's just, that's the best case. There's some nurses actually significantly worse off than that. Into that, into the falling real wages, into the fact that you've got uh, the average nurse now graduates with £54,000 worth of debt. On top of that, you're saying, you know what? You don't have the right strike. You don't have the right strike. So you're going to see your real wages fall every year. They're 20% lower than they were in 2010. You've got £54,000 worth of student debt. You can't find affordable housing. You can't get on the mortgage ladder. And you know what? You can't do anything about it either. Is that really going to be a positive impetus for people to say, you know what? I'm going to join the NHS as a nurse. I, I really don't think so. We should be thinking about incentives for people to take on these vocations because they're critically necessary for society. You know, again, Michael, this, this whole level of abstraction that Tories are now operating on, the fundamental reality is we don't train enough healthcare professionals in this country. We haven't done that for more than a decade. So they can talk about targets and, you know, press releases and percentages and legal obligations. You can't run a public healthcare system. By the way, it doesn't need to be NHS. It can be European style, you know, mixed model. It can be US style privatized healthcare. None of these models work if you don't have enough nurses and doctors. Madness, Michael, madness. Now we've said that about the Tories for a very long time, but in 2022 in particular, and now in 2023, this is no way to run a country. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how this is all combined with a service which is understaffed. Because, you know, if you think about, you know, the big disputes between sort of Labour and the government, Labour is in organised Labour, not the Labour Party. Think about the miners' strike, for example. So what they, they were trying to attack the workforce um, in, in coal mines because they wanted to get rid of the coal industry, right? The whole point was they thought the coal industry was overstaffed. So they wanted to make a load of them redundant. So... It didn't matter from the Tory perspective if you completely demoralised these people because you wanted them to leave anyway. If they all turned around and said, oh, we quit, whatever, they'd say, great, job done. Everyone seems to admit, well, everyone, I hope everyone admits we need an education service. We need a health service. And all of these sectors are completely understaffed. And the response from the government has been to go to war with the workforce. Like there's, there's something that doesn't quite add up there. It, it, it's not going to end well, is it? We will be coming back to these stories. Um, ambulance strikes. There have been new dates announced today. Junior doctors are going to be balloted as well. So this is only going to intensify. Now, before we move on, something you might not know if you missed our Wednesday show. Very exciting news. If you head to shop.navaramedia.com right now, we are running 10% off our entire store until the 15th of January. We've got lots of products there from water bottles, I need to get a new one actually, to t-shirts, to socks, and it's a great way of helping support our organization. My Mark's water bottle got stolen from Bristol Station from the top of a vending machine while I went to the loo. So if that was you, I'm still rather upset about it, but I, I shall endeavor to replace it soon. Now we're moving on to the real news. The real news of the day. All that faff about trade unions and workers' rights and wages and public services. Now we're talking about what matters. Prince Harry's autobiography, Spare, has leaked, and it seems jam-packed full of surprising revelations. Now they include drug-taking, a physical fight with his brother, the future king, and the circumstances in which he lost his virginity. But perhaps the most incendiary claim was about the number of people he killed when fighting in Afghanistan. Now, in the book, he writes this. 
Most soldiers don't know exactly how many kills they have to their credit. Under battle conditions, you often fire indiscriminately. However, in the age of Apaches and laptops, everything I did in the course of two tours of duty was recorded and timestamped. I could always tell exactly how many enemy combatants I had killed, and it seemed essential for me not to be afraid of that figure. Among the many things I learned in the armed forces, one of the most important was to be accountable for my own actions. So my number, 25. It was not something that filled me with satisfaction, but I was not ashamed either. Naturally, I would have preferred not to have that figure on my military resume or in my head, but I would also have preferred to live in a world without the Taliban, a world without war. It goes on, it wasn't a statistic that filled me with pride, but nor did it make me ashamed. When I was plunged into the heat and confusion of battle, I didn't think about those as 25 people. You can't kill people if you see them as people. In truth, you can't hurt people if you see them as people. They were chess pieces taken off the board, bad guys eliminated before they kill good guys. They trained me to other them, and they trained me well. Now, Prince Harry was a helicopter fighter pilot in Afghanistan, so it's perfectly possible he could have killed that many people over the course of his two tours in Helmand. Much of the UK reaction to the revelation hasn't been about the dead or about the war itself, though. Instead, media pundits have been more concerned about whether Harry should have revealed the fact at all and how it makes the army look. Speaking to BBC Breakfast, this is Colonel Richard Kemp. My greatest concern is this impression he gives about the British army kind of looking at their enemy as subhuman. And he, he makes the suggestion that you can't kill somebody if you regard them as human. Of course, that's complete nonsense. And, and, and it's, it is a shame in many ways, because he's a very brave man who went to Afghanistan voluntarily, had to fight the government policy to get there, um, and had a fantastic reputation for his courage in action, and also for the way he championed wounded soldiers. And I think this, to an extent, tarnished that reputation. Some in Afghanistan, though, have lauded Harry's admission. Senior Taliban leader Anas Haqqani posted this on social media. Mr. Harry, the ones you killed were not chess pieces. They were humans. They had families who were waiting for their return. Among the killers of Afghans, not many have your decency to reveal their conscience and confess to their war crimes. The truth is what you've said. Our innocent people were chess pieces to your soldiers, military and political leaders. Still, you were defeated in that, quote, game of white and black, quote, square. I don't expect that the ICC, so the International Criminal Court, will summon you or the human rights activists will condemn you because they are deaf and blind for you. But hopefully these atrocities will be remembered in the history of humanity. Aram, I'm not sure that Prince Harry realized this was going to be the sort of excerpt from his book that would get the most attention, but it, you know, <clears throat> it, it has, I think, probably quite rightly. What do you make of him writing in his book that he killed 25 Afghans? Well, there's a reaction to it online, which is a bit incongruent with what I've seen in terms of the quotes. So you've said things there, which obviously are appalling. It's appalling. It's obviously appalling. We were an army. Britain had an army of occupation in Afghanistan. We, we shouldn't have been there. Important to say, big difference between Iraq and Afghanistan from a legal standpoint. Iraq was, I think most sensible people at the time said, an illegal war of aggression. Afghanistan had multilateral buy-in, you know, UN resolutions and whatnot. So different in that regard. I mean, I, I think they're probably the same. I think there were wars of occupation. I think if you're going to somebody's country and killing people, I think you're, you're generally in the wrong. But what he said was interesting about the, the, the dehumanization of the people he was killing, because that was basically, it's a precursor to being an effective soldier. And the soldiers I've spoken to, that's what they say. So it's not really in keeping with what Richard Kemp was 
responding with, you know, effectively they viewed their training as soldiers, as, you know, service personnel. And of course, not every veteran or serving soldier agrees with this, but this is what they said to me, um, that they view it as a form of brutalization and that effectively it's a form of trauma. And it's, it's, it's um, you have to internalize a certain set of traumas in order to be a quote unquote good soldier. And one of the features of that is being able to dehumanize your enemy. Because of course, it's very difficult for a human to randomly kill a stranger they've never met. That is quite hard. So I, I don't find it a, it's an honest statement. I think it's, it's so honest, of course, it, it takes you back because these aren't the things that we're told about what happened in Afghanistan. You know, we think that our, our service personnel were over there, of course, and they were, you know, reading, uh, the, teaching the alphabet to Afghan girls and uh, digging water wells and, you know, making the country a fantastic place. And that isn't what war is. We're trying to pacify a country as large as Afghanistan with tens of millions of people. There's going to be lots of violence. And so I think that's what's most notable about this is that Prince Harry is being quite candid about the level of violence and about how, you know, basically a lot of, a lot of the training that goes into it, it involves people having to lie to themselves and lie to one another. Clearly, all man manner of barbarity happened over in Afghanistan as a result of the war. Now, people can say, it wasn't a legitimate regime. The Taliban are awful, so we have to get rid of them. Okay. And by the way, they're backed up with what I said at the start of this, which was there was a UN resolution to deal with this. And of course, this comes in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. It is very different to Iraq in that respect. But I think you're an occupying army and it's a war of occupation. I think generally speaking, we look at those after 50, 100 years is almost always ethically unacceptable. And I think people will look at Afghanistan in the same way. There's another excerpt, I don't think we're mentioning it here on the show, if we are, my apologies, but I didn't see it in the show notes, where he talks about the word hacky, the P word. I mean, I've been called it, so I think I can, I'm justified in being able to use it. And he says that when he was raised, uh, he didn't view it as racist, obviously a stupid thing to say. But again, people are attacking him for that. And I thought, well, that's actually quite instructive. If what he's saying is true, it's quite instructive that the brother of the future monarch of England, who presently is you know, Prince William, he'll be King William, or he might choose another name, he was raised in an environment where he didn't know that was a racist term. I think that's quite an extraordinary admission. But instead, what we're talking about is the fact that I think to constantly garner public attention, which of course is now what Harry has to do, that's now his job. He's becoming a celebrity. He's going to have to constantly try and get people's attention to stay a high value commodity for the, for the press. He's going to have to reach ever further back into the recesses of his personal life to remain relevant. And that's going to be quite undignified, frankly. So it, I can see why this did become the main takeaway for the media, because this is actually quite an important snapshot of, of the British story in the first decade of the 21st century, which was we participated in two really significant wars overseas. What do you think about the claim, you know, that he's, you know, I, I, he, he, he seems to be talking about it, you know, in a candid way. Yeah, I don't think he's being dis dismissive about what's happened, but. What do you make of the claim of him saying that he killed 25 Taliban? Like, I mean, I know he's saying that with the, the degree of technology we have now, you can be fairly sure about what's happened. Can we have any confidence that the 25 people he killed were actually members of, of the Taliban? Well, this is one of the great myths about the you know, modern military with the US, the UK, and others in, you know, in, the, in the advanced countries, where you hear about you know, precision strikes. They're not very precise. I mean, we've heard story after story about quote-unquote collateral damage in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, of innocents being killed. 
It still happens, by the way. There are still, you know, that, since the United States has left Afghanistan, there are still drone strikes which kill innocent people. This, I think, quite predictably, gets a lot less media attention than what the Taliban does, which, of course, is equally objectionable and outrageous. But we have a lot more control over what our own armed forces do in our name than what the Taliban do. I think there's quite an important distinction there. I think you're right, Michael. And look, this is why Harry needs to be interviewed by Navarra Media. We need to get him in a one-on-one with Michael Walker or Ash Sarkar. Because those are the kinds of details which I think would be really interesting. Well, you're saying they were Taliban. How do you know? Because, of course, this is another kind of cliche that we heard straight after invasion, all the way through, really, to the last couple of years. Everybody the British Armed Forces took on and the United States, they were Taliban. Well, realistically, that's actually quite an amorphous kind of relationship between Afghan general public, particularly outside the larger cities, and the Taliban. That's not, you know, it wasn't it wasn't this hierarchical organization with a leader pointing people around with incentives and resources, you know, like a, you, know, you might sort of view as analogous to a, an, a, an army. That wasn't what it was. It was there was a national resistance movement going on. I mean, how else do you explain, Michael? How else do you explain the fact that a government which had resources and been installed by the West had some level of democratic legitimacy too? How else do you explain it falling so quickly? if there wasn't a national movement to get rid of it. And of course, we can't say that in the West. It wasn't said in the West. So we were kind of dumbfounded and perplexed. But the reason why it happened so quickly is because there was a critical number of Afghans who didn't want that government there, because there wasn't a functioning rule of law, because you know the country hasn't really benefited to the extent that was being said uh, after the invasion. So I don't know, these are all very controversial topics in Britain and Europe. Right. And what I find really interesting, actually, with the Afghan stuff is you see videos of awful things happening in Afghanistan. Right. Awful things. Women can't go to university. Appalling. Appalling. And people say, share this video to raise awareness. We occupied the country for 20 years to do that, and it didn't work out. So you have trillions of dollars spent in Afghanistan with an occupying army to bring about certain. That wasn't the primary reason we went there, but. Uh, social shifts, including, for instance, girls in school, women at university, other things too, of course, free press, freedom of association, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You spend trillions of dollars trying to do that, including a military occupation. That didn't work. You think somebody sharing a viral video on Twitter or TikTok is going to make any difference? It really impresses on me this very strange conversation we have about foreign policy in the 21st century. Britain, France, the US, we cannot decide how other countries are run anymore. We can't do it. We can't do it. I mean, it was misguided in the early years of the 21st century. It's utterly delusional in 2023. Personally, I, I find the candor from Harry, I think it's useful. I, I, you know, I, I, I saw some responses saying, oh, he's the sort of the hero of the woke millennials, you know, the Anglo-American woke millennials, their avatar is Harry and Meghan, and yet he killed 25 people in Afghanistan. I think that's a very valid point. But I'd far rather he is so honest and candid about the fact that he killed people rather than pretend... You know, he was serving some humanitarian mission, digging wells and, and you know, uh, showing Sesame Street to five and six-year-olds in Afghan schools. That's not the reality of a war of occupation. Harry has given interviews publicizing his new book to ITV, CBS and Good Morning America. They've all been trailing clips before the book goes on sale next week. Now, in these clips, Harry begins by describing a fist fight with Prince William. What was different here was this level of frustration And I talk about the red mist that I had for so many years. And I saw this red mist in him. He wanted me to to hit him back, but I chose not to. 
there's a fair amount of drugs, marijuana, mm-hmm. magic mushrooms, cocaine. I mean, that's going to surprise people. But important to acknowledge. I want reconciliation. But first, there needs to be some accountability. The truth, supposedly, at the moment, has been there's only one side to this story, right? But there's two sides to every story. One of the criticisms that you've received is that, well, okay, fine, you want to move to California, you want to step back from the institutional role, why be so public? You say you tried to do this privately. And every single time I've tried to do it privately, there have been briefings and leakings and planting of stories against me and my wife. You know, the family motto is never complain, never explain. But it's just a motto. And it doesn't really hold... There's a lot of complaining and a lot of explaining. And private being done in through leaks. Through leaks. They will feed or have a conversation with the correspondent. And that correspondent will literally be spoon-fed information and write the story. And at the bottom of it, they will say that they've reached out to Buckingham Palace for comment. Mm. But the whole story is Buckingham Palace commenting. So when we're being told for the last six years, we can't put a statement out to protect you, but you do it for other members of the family, there becomes a point when silence is betrayal. What Meghan had to go through was, was similar in some part to what Kate and what Camilla went through. Very different circumstances. But then you add in the race element, which was what the press, British press jumped on straight away. I went into this incredibly naive. I had no idea the British press was so bigoted. Hell, I was probably bigoted you, before you, the relationship with, with Meghan. You think you were bigoted before the relationship with Meghan? I, I don't know. Put it this way, I didn't see what I now see. The quote in his book where you refer to your brother as your um, beloved brother and arch nemesis. Strong words. What did you mean by that? There has always been this competition between us, weirdly. I think it really plays into or is played by the air spare. So fights with the heir to the throne, cocaine, and yeah, this continued warpath with the royal machine. He thinks they're constantly, um, or they were constantly leaking against him and his wife, Meghan Markle. A lot to unpack. It doesn't seem you know, particularly good for the royal family. That is unless... You are the BBC's resident royal correspondent, Nicholas Witchell. Um, He had this to say. The irresistible appeal of all of this, um, the media gorging on it yet again across all the front pages. And here we are leading our bulletins for a second day running. At some point, I suspect many people will tire of this. And I think, uh, you know, we also need to consider what's not in the book, which is certainly, I suspect, what the palace will be weighing up. There are, uh, after all, no, as it were, irrecoverable lines that we're aware of on racially inappropriate language or behaviour. Think back to the Oprah Winfrey interview. That was the big issue that emerged there. I'm not aware that that has been taken forward in this book. There are no irrecoverable lines, actually, I think, on Camilla. Yes, um, the boys asked their father not to marry her because they feared that she would become a wicked stepmother. But she did not become the wicked stepmother, according to this book. There are no criticisms, serious, significant criticisms of her. And there are no, I think, 
significant criticisms of their father in the way that he did his job as Prince of Wales or as he's doing his job as king. So I suspect that the palace will be weighing this up clearly and will be feeling that, well, yes, this is uncomfortable. Of course it is, but we have, if you look back 30 years, we have been here before dealing with interviews and books and we can weather this and we will get on with the job. Nicholas, we've been here, we've been here before, interviews, books clearly a reference to Diana. Like he really speaks with the voice of the royal family. These pesky people giving interviews where they lay bare what's going on in the royal family. You'd have thought as the royal correspondent, you'd quite enjoy that. Don't you, don't you want to know what's going on? It's like, God, oh, pestilent Prince Harry. Um, we've talked about, obviously, the, 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 the killing in Afghanistan. What do you make of the rest of the revelations and yeah, the response from Nicholas Witchell and the like? Yeah, which was the thing about, well, I think people are going to get bored of this eventually. It's like, hold on, your job is to make sure they don't get bored of this. You're the royal correspondent for the BBC. Yeah, I think people have had enough of the roars. <laughs> you talked about the television for 25 years. Very surreal moment, right? Enough of the roars. Oh, yes, isn't that wonderful? The Queen, of course, yes. Well, she's got a history of wearing matching green hats and you know, blazers. The most inane stuff. But apparently, you know... The, the brother of the next King of England, you know, having, having a fight. Not a big deal. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I think, look, I mean, brothers, I mean, I found the fight thing kind of strange. Brothers fight, Michael. Brothers do, yeah, brothers have physical fights. It's not good. I'm not celebrating it. I'm not saying, oh, you know, it's, you know, it's immaterial. Sometimes they have fights and it's like, you know, awful. Brothers have fights. I mean, that's what brothers do. I, I find that a bit strange. Like, they had a physical altercation. Okay. I mean, is that, that, is that so unusual? Or, you know, he's done mushrooms and cocaine as a 17, 18-year-old in Britain, okay? That makes him quite normal. Um, it's interesting that that's the stuff that leads. And then as Witchell says, there's no sort of irrecoverable sort of PR catastrophes in terms of a later rapprochement, which is interesting, right? Which I think suggests this book is about selling books, you know, it's about selling, or this endeavor rather, is about selling books, you know, making money, raising media profile, being able to have an independent media and financial existence from the from the royal family for, for him and Meghan. But then, like you say, or like Nicholas Witchell says, rather, keeping doors open for, for later on and coming back together again. Brothers have fights. Families fall out all the time. Is that so strange? The idea that, you know, the brothers didn't want their dad to marry Camilla. I mean, I've have found this whole thing bizarre, Michael, because... Camilla and Charles were shagging while Charles was still with their mother. I mean, the fact they even talked to her is, I think, a real positive reflection on both of them. In a normal sort of family, this would be just really, really weird. The idea that both the, the sons of a woman who basically her life was torn apart, and that was partly enabled by her husband, who at the same time was openly sleeping with somebody else, and apparently they're meant to love this woman now. Come on. If that was, if that, if your dad did that, first of all, you'd think he was an asshole, which this is another thing. All these people bleating on about how Prince Charles, in, including the Guardian, how Prince Charles is suddenly such a wonderful role model, so much better than the Tories. Look, if you're a dad of two kids and you're humiliating their mother in public and you're sleeping with another woman openly and everybody knows about it, no, you aren't a role model. I don't care how wonderful you are on the climate crisis or what you were going to go say, you know, cop in Egypt. Let's start with the basics, right? And don't raise your children like that. Um, it, it's interesting that he, he says that stuff and then he doesn't go all in, which again, is a credit to him. Let's see, Michael. Again, we, we need 
a real expert on these things. Not Nicholas Witchell, Ash Sarka, Ash Nasarka, to prize apart the really important uh, aspects of this book. But on the one hand, where I said that the candor around Afghanistan was useful, and I think that's, that's a political point, I think the stuff about a 17 or 18-year-old man taking cocaine and having a punch-up with his brother a bit later on in life, I think that's mundane, to say the least, when it comes to, you know, how most people in this country live their lives. Final story. Keir Starmer has given his New Year's speech. It took place in Stratford, London, just a stone's throw away from the warehouse where Rishi Sunak delivered his New Year's message the day before. All a little bizarre. Now, in Starmer's speech, he promised to take back control with a bill to decentralise power away from Westminster. He also said that Labour would kickstart a decade of national renewal. Now, that latter pledge sounds pretty expensive. But then, loud and clear, Starmer said this. Let me be clear. None of this should be taken as code for Labour getting its big government checkbook out. Of course, investment is required. I can see the damage the Tories have done to our public services as plainly as anyone else. But we won't be able to spend our way out of their mess. It's not as simple as that. This is really difficult to square. You've got Starmer's messaging, the big critique of the Tories. Essentially, they've been underinvesting in public services for 13 years. Now we're seeing the result of that. And however they say, Labour is not going to get out of this by spending more money. Now, if your critique is that they haven't spent enough money, they've cut too much fun, too, you know, cut too much funding, and now we're seeing the result. How are you going to say, but we're not going to spend to resolve it? I mean, spending a lot more money has to be part of the resolution, no? Now, as I say, difficult um, to work out how he's going to resolve this tension, and it's something that Chris Mason pressed him on. Keir Summer, you said today that Labour uh, wouldn't be getting its big government checkbook out. Will that mean that you won't spend any more than a Conservative government would after the next election? I know we're going to inherit a very badly damaged economy. Now, in terms of the way forward and matching the government, there are choices to be made. Um, so, for example, um, on non-DOM tax status, on private equity loopholes, on private school exemptions, we've been clear of the different choices we would make, how much money we think that would raise and what we'd spend it on. And we'll continue... Uh, with that fully costed approach. But, you know, we have got the highest tax burden since the war. And therefore, you know, the scope for high tax increases is simply not there. But so is this spending? is a realistic approach to what I know we're going to inherit after 13 years of Tory failure, which is a broken economy. But is that spending more the same or less than the Conservatives? Well, as I say, there are different choices to be made. So um, where we've made those different choices, we've said what money that would raise and what we'd use it for. We'll continue to do that into the election. Um, but look, I know we're going to inherit a very bad situation. And I know that with a tax burden as high as it already is, the scope for big tax increases is simply not there. Some people might say, what's the point of a Labour government if you won't spend more than the Conservatives? Well, the point of a Labour government is to make sure that we can grow our economy, grow it across the whole of the country, um, that we can get our public well, the Conservatives say that, aren't they? Well, the Conservatives have driven us to this point. It's no good the Prime Minister coming along now and saying, well, I know that pretty well everything has failed, but please give us one more chance. Uh, they brought us to this point. What we need now is a decade of national renewal, um, and that's what a Labour government will bring. So, weird. so the Conservatives did bring us to this point, he's right, but they brought us to this point by cutting public spending, right, by starving the public sector by austerity. 
So if that's your analysis of how they brought us to this point, which essentially has been Labour's analysis, you know, say they starved public services of investment, then how how do you come forward and say, look, we're not going to borrow to spend on public services? They said they are going to borrow to invest, but it's been kind of unclear how that's going to be able to happen if you're still trying to reduce debt as a proportion of GDP. So you know, I, I presume they're going to include investment into that function. It's difficult to see what's happened. We're, we're not going to borrow to spend. We're not going to be able to tax to spend, yet we're still going to renew the public services which the Tories have degraded and eroded for the past 13 years. Aaron, I mean, I, I can see why he is doing this electorally. Like if there's a plan, I suppose I'm yeah. fine with it. I can see why he's saying, look, the thing we need to do is not give them an inch to attack us by. Like, fine, whatever. I just can't see how this translates into a coherent plan for, for government. If you're going to renew public services, but you're not going to increase taxes and you're not going to borrow, how does it work? Can you make this make sense for me? Well, he would say growth, right? Well, we'll, I would simply grow the economy. You know, our solution will be we'll have 5% annual GDP growth and that'll sort everything out. (laughs) That's very easy to say. Every government has said since 2010, we haven't really had a growth model in this country since the global financial crisis. 16 years ago, starts in 2007. Every government since then has said, I will grow the economy. We've had really flatlining productivity. What is that? That's the amount of output per person per hour worked, again, for the best part of 16 years. So it's really simple and easy to say that but actually it's harder to deliver it. It's, I think, impossible to deliver it when you're not talking about spending more money. And what's most remarkable of all, Michael, is he's saying that in the context of recession. It's not like the economy is growing by like 0.5%. This year, in 2023, we're looking at, apparently, it might change, we're looking at a 1% uh, contraction. We're looking at a really profound recession this year. Now, John Maynard Keynes, who wasn't a socialist, was a liberal, had a big contribution to economics after the Great Depression, which is that you can use government to spend money in a downturn to help generate final demand and and to accelerate exit out of a recession. So it should be a perfectly normal thing to say, we're willing to spend more money to get out of a recession. And we'll do that on things like increasing public sector pay, probably, you know, you might have freeze on, on, um, on student fees, or maybe even reduce them for a couple of years. I mean, I would scrap them. But if you're being Labour, right, what could you do that's a little bit, you know, a bit positive? Big program of social housing instruction will obviously create jobs as well as addressing a big social problem. Infrastructure spending. I mean, I don't personally believe anything he says. And I get ripped apart by some people on, on Twitter for this, people who are Labour supporters or Starmer supporters, or frankly, just people who are so fed up with the Tories, they, and I agree with them, you have to get them out. And they are willing to give him far more credibility. That's Keir Starmer than I think he deserves. This is somebody who didn't want HS2. He didn't want HS2. He opposed HS2. And now he's saying, as leader of the opposition, we won't just do HS2. We'll do Great Northern uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail. Um, we'll, we'll do all the extra bits that the Tories won't do either. So he's gone from no HS2 to we need high-speed rail across the country plus plus. Why? Where's that come from? How does it fit within his broader vision of, of politics in the country? And he says, you know, in response to Chris Mason, what's the point of a Labour government? Economic growth. No, it's not. You know, you could have economic, there was economic growth in this country, albeit not particularly healthy, between 2013 and 2015, there was economic growth in this country. A lot of it came out of um, help to buy. Is, is that good? Is that what Labour should do? Pump prime the economy and the housing sector and ramp up inequality and not begin to solve problems like, you know, collapsing public services. That's not what Labour is for. Labour is meant to be about improving the lot of working people in this country, which is the majority of people, not people with massive amounts of wealth. 
there's plenty of money out there, Michael. There is plenty of money out there. The wealth of billionaires in this country during the pandemic increased by hundreds of billions of pounds, hundreds of billions of pounds. There was a recent study, I think by the IFS, again, not very left-wing. They said that if you wanted public sector to see their wages keep up with inflation this year, the Tories have said it's 28 billion. Actually, it's a lot less than that. It's probably close to about 15 to 18 billion. So, okay, billionaires can make collectively, just during the pandemic, hundreds of billions of pounds, but we're not willing to pay 15 to 18 billion so that firefighters, nurses, rail, rail workers, police officers, refuse workers, whoever, we're not willing to see those. Those people will get poorer. Sorry, hundreds of billions, 15 billion. Should be quite straightforward. Again, that's not really a radical thing to say. And I'm, I'm worried, Michael, frankly, because I don't, I don't think style of government will change very much. I want to be wrong. I think this is another thing that people don't read properly. I want to be wrong. I want Starmer to be, you know, this really smart, deceptive political Machiavelli, which my God, he did with the Labour Party membership. I don't want him to do that because I think ultimately when you try and deliver change, people think you've misled them and then they get rid of you. But anyway, I would be pleasantly surprised if he was doing this in the name of political expediency, and then he becomes the prime minister and actually we see some really positive reform. But I don't think we will. I, I just don't think we will. And that, that's not an argument to not vote Labour. I'm not saying that. But I, I think people should be quite circumspect with their, um, with their hopes. I think basically the Labour government will be 5% less shit than the Tories. And hey, that's a lot, right? That means something. But uh, it's not national renewal, as he put it. Anything but really. You know, it's just a slightly, a slightly slower rate of decline for a country which frankly hasn't had a, a conception of the future for, for 15, 16 years. And it's sad to see. What's very frustrating about it, and I mean, I always, I tend to be more sympathetic to Starmer than some people on Twitter when he's sort of like not committing to big, bold things. I'm like, fine, the dude wants to get elected. He can do it after he gets elected. But if he's committing to things like not raising taxes, then you've got a real problem. And it, it's also just dishonest, I think, because, you know, you saw Rachel Reeves sort of go out on the airwaves and say, oh, the last two manifestos, they promised all this unfunded stuff, pie in the sky, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, I haven't, dotted the I's and crossed the T's in those grey books that said it was a costed manifesto. And it's, it's easier to say something's costed than it actually be costed. I don't know. But at least the Labour Party in 2017 and 2019 had a coherent story to tell, which is we are going to renew public services by spending more money on them. And we're going to get that money by taxing the rich. That makes a lot of sense. It's completely coherent. Starmer, on the other hand, saying we're going to renew public services, maybe by spending more money on them, maybe not by. And we are going to end austerity by getting rid of non-DOM status and removing the charity status from private schools. Now, non-DOM status by Labour's own admission will make about £3 billion a year. Removing the charity status from private schools will make £1.6 billion a year. Now, for context, the NHS budget is £180 billion a year. So with £4.5 billion a year, you're not going to renew the, the, the social fabric of Britain. You need to show me how that's going to work. If you're not going to borrow, if you're not going to tax the rich, then how is this going to happen? Like you, you, he's going to have to answer that question before the next general election. He certainly hasn't yet. It, to me, yeah, it seems that actually this is much less, you know, fiscally sensible and honest than what was offered by Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. Let's wrap up there, Aaron. A pleasure to be joined by you in 2023. I agree with you. It's going to be a big year for Navarra Media. My pleasure, Michael. I think really important to say, even if we just want to stop the rot and things get slightly better, it's probably going to take a tax and spend plan like Labour had in 2019. Nobody in British politics is going to admit that for the next several years, but don't worry. We will keep hammering that home right here on Navarra Media. 
particularly in 2023. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for watching. We'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. Have a great weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.